The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Grab your Bibles, you can open them to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. I trust that you've been enjoying your time in God's Word and in the Psalms specifically this summer. It's been a treat to study. The Psalms are such an amazing and a unique book among all of Scripture. And uh, thank you so much. In that they, they help us they help us understand our emotions in a unique way. And, and all of Scripture can help us do that and ought to help us do that. But the Psalms uniquely display a kind of emotion that we can either mimic or we can learn from. So uh, the Psalms this, uh, this summer have been, have been, I trust and I pray, enlightening and helpful to you uh, in, in your own navigating of what the Lord has, has done for you. Let's first begin with prayer and asking God to be with us and uh, our minds and hearts this morning as we study His Word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give thanks to You for Your Word. It's holy, inspired, infallible, and authoritative. We ask now, Lord, as we spend time in it, in study and in contemplation, that you would bless our study and that you would calm our minds and our hearts to hear and receive. Lord, I trust that you have a message for us from your word, uniquely suited for our place and time in this world. And so though, Lord, we have more children than normal in our service, uh, Lord, give them a supernatural quietude or their parents, a supernatural patience. And Lord, allow your ears, your, your words to fall on our ears, not as deaf, but as those open to receive. And that we trust your word, believe it, and walk in light of it. We pray, God, for those who are not here, who are traveling, who are sick, otherwise indisposed. Lord, we pray, God, that you would comfort them, encourage them, heal them, edify them, draw them to your word and prayer now. For those who are here, not here because of sin or neglect, who have wandered away from the flock and from your presence, Lord, we pray that you would graciously convict them in spirit and draw them to repentance and restore them to the body. We pray for those who may be here, Lord, particularly our children who do not have a saving knowledge of Christ. Would the word of Scripture this morning penetrate into their heart and sow seeds of truth and of the gospel and of repentance that you would bring forth into fruits of righteousness and salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 89. I'll invite you to offer thanks to the Lord after I finish reading. I will say thanks. This is the word of the Lord. You can respond with me. Thanks be to God. Psalm 89, starting in verse 1. A Moscow of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. 
Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? And who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a great God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? Above all who are around him, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyless, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then... I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all have I sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of the sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity have you created all the children of man? What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? by which your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in, the heart, in my heart the insult of all the many nations 
with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Psalm 89 was originally written, it says there in the title, by Ethan the Ezraite. It was probably originally ending in verse 37. And in its initial form, it was a song, a hymn, a psalm of praise, of exaltation to God for his faithfulness, for choosing and raising up David, the mightiest of the kings, who brought Israel into its glory and into its greatest inheritance, who it seems all of the blessings promised to their fathers were going to come true through David as he built his kingdom, as he defeated his enemies. It praises God for the life of King David, but then shortly after Solomon took over the kingdom from his father and then Rehoboam after him, life in Israel took an unexpected turn. If you remember from our study last summer in the historical narratives, what once began as a great kingdom under David soon fell into disrepute under Solomon, who took for him wives and idolatries and led the kingdom and his sons into sin and transgressions. Life in Israel took an unexpected turn, and because of their sin and because of their idolatry, God allowed Israel to be divided into two kingdoms, from the north and the south. The north, where ten tribes were gathered together, and the south, the tribe of Judah alone, both of which eventually would be carried into exile, first under the Assyrians and under the Babylonians. And so to those under captivity, those who look at their former glory as something far off, who consider God's faithfulness as something now distant and hope for a different kind of future, this psalm in its original form is unsingable. No longer can they rejoice in God's faithfulness when it seems that God's faithfulness no longer carries the day. And so instead, an unnamed, inspired editor took up the task of taking Psalm 89 and rewriting it, adding the last 14 or 15 verses, which are really a song of lament. It laments the tragic turn of events that happen after David and his kingdom and his rule ultimately ends. There is no king from David's line who sits on the throne. The throne, it says, has been thrown to the ground. And so questions are asked. Is God still faithful? Are his promises still true? Why are things happening the way they are? For surely God has hidden himself from us. He's no longer loving toward us. Instead, we only know his wrath. We only know his judgment. We are sitting under the condemnation of God. Is he faithful anymore to Israel? God's promise to David and Abraham before him it seems to have failed. The blessing promised to Abraham that would come through the seed in the line of David stands no more. So what will God do? And what will we do? Well, the main idea this morning from the psalm that we'll see is that God's love and faithfulness are proven to his people through the death and resurrection of Christ. And this life of Jesus serves as the basis of our hope and distress that we, as we read Psalm 89, can trust in the continued love and faithfulness of God that sought at one point to give the promised blessings to David and his line, but are fulfilled ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. God's love and faithfulness are proven to his people in the death and resurrection of Christ, which serve as the basis of our hope and distress. 
You'll be helped if you keep your Bible open to Psalm 89 and follow along with me. We'll be deeply in the text throughout our entire message. The psalm opens really with several verses of praise. And these first four verses of the psalm set the theme and the standard of what this psalm is meant to teach us. The themes, of course, that are risen in the first four verses are that of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. If you have a highlighter or a marker, underline every time you read steadfast love or loving kindness, whatever the word may be in your translation. It's hesed in the Hebrew. It's this beautiful picture of God's love and unrelenting kindness towards his people, his mercy and favor. And underline or circle every time we come to the word faithfulness. You'll see the theme throughout the psalm is of God's faithfulness and loving kindness and mercy to his people. Three things we should know then about God's steadfast love and faithfulness we learn just from these first four verses. First is that it is established in the heaven. Look at verse 2. For I have said steadfast love will be built up forever. This is the, what the Lord declared. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness, it is said. So the steadfast love and faithfulness is taught to us as being established, set forth and firm in the heavens. What does this mean? It means before the earth was created, God had a plan to love and give mercy to those whom he would create and call to himself. The steadfast love and faithfulness of God was established in the heavens. This is often what is referred to as the covenant of redemption, where God in his perfect wisdom set forth from eternity past his plan to give love to his people. Before Genesis 1, where he made the earth and filled it with animals and vegetation and placed man in it, his covenant of redemption was formed. His steadfast love has been established in the heavens. God's mercy on you and your life did not begin the first moment you walked into church. It did not begin even when you were born. It didn't even begin when Paul walked the earth and wrote his epistles. God's love for your life didn't begin when David was alive and the Psalms recorded his glory. God's love for you didn't begin when Abraham walked and promises were made to him about the blessing for the earth. God's love for you did not begin even when the world was formed. God's love and steadfast faithfulness for you began in eternity past in the happy presence of the Trinity. They made a covenant of redemption for your sake, for all those who would in Christ be known and made known to him has been established in the heavens. Not only does it mean that God has established his love before all time, but it also means that it has been fixed and it is unalterable. That nothing in the course of human history would ever alter the path of God's love directed towards his people. That there is no king or kingdom or nation or molecule that could ever direct the path of God's justice away from the cross or God's grace away from your life. It is established in the heavens, firm, fixed. Secondly, we learn of God's steadfast love and faithfulness is that it is for all generations. Literally, the Hebrew, it is generation and generation. 
continues on past the ages. It is fixed and established in the heavens for all generations. Look in verse 1 and verse 4. I will make known your faithfulness to generation and generation. In verse 4, he says that I will establish your offspring forever to David and build your throne for all generations, for generation to generation. This means two things. That God's love and steadfast faithfulness stands. It does not fail. It cannot fall. It stands as it is fixed in the heavens, so it stands for all time. For all generations throughout history, God's perfect, steadfast love and faithfulness stands. There is no part of His plan for your life that will ever fail. Secondly, it is sufficient and that it will not disappoint every generation who comes to hear the words and the precious promises of God's truth. God's steadfast love and faithfulness to all generations is sufficient for each one of our lives. It is sufficient for you, brothers and sisters, and for your children. Teach, friends, your children the gospel and proclaim to them the sufficiency of the gospel. Tell them that God's love is sufficient for your fathers and for you and for them and for their children, that God's word stands. And as long as the Lord tarries, his word will be sufficient for every generation. Third thing about God's steadfast love and faithfulness we learn from this first four verses is that it is the foundation then of his promises. Notice the word he uses in verse 2. I said your steadfast love will be built up forever. And in verse 4, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. The theme here of building is one speaking of the temple. Is even there speaking of the strength of God's word. Not only does it stand and is it sufficient for all generations, but as the foundation of his promises, it means that God's love and faithfulness is strong and will not fail. It is built on the promises of his word. His love and faithfulness is the foundation of all true graces. Not only is it strong, it is stable, and that it will not be broken. It is a firm foundation, we are told. See, God is working out the covenant with Abraham through his covenant with David. It says in verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. There literally, I have cut a covenant with my servant. This, of course, brings to mind the language used when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, where God literally cuts a covenant with Abraham and promises that he would be a father of a great multitude and that through him all the children of the world would be blessed. What the psalmist understands is that the chosen one of God is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, and it seems that God would be working out this promise through David. And so God's steadfast love and faithfulness is established in the heavens for all generations, and it's the foundation of his promises. Lastly, we learn that it is the theme of our song. Steadfast love and faithfulness is the theme of our song. He says there in verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. 
This is the psalmist's song. Two questions. Why do you sing? What's the reason you sing? Second but important question. What do you sing of? What are the words of truth in the songs you sing? Lord, we love to sing at Foundation. We sing with music. We sing without music. We sing in our homes. We sing around the campfire. We sing when we gather. It's important to sing. It's one of the ways that we can take God's word and truth and bury it deep into our hearts. It's one of the ways we can teach it to our children. But the themes of our songs must not resonate with the world or with our desires or with our idolatries. It must be and only be the purposes and the faithfulness and the love of God. All of which we sing must point us and remind us of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. So friends, why do you sing? Is your heart, as you sing the words of our hymns and our songs this morning, is it resonating with the truth of the words? Or do you sing them because you don't want to be the person who's not singing? Do you sing them because you've memorized the words but they've become hollow and empty over the years? Or do you sing with full rejoicing in truth that the words that are coming out of our mouths together aren't empty, they're not hollow, but they're true? Is this the theme of your song? In verses 5 through 16, the question then is raised, because of this God who is love and faithful, the question asked is who is like him? It's a praise of God who is like no other. Who is like God? We learn several things about this God as he praises him. We learn that his wonders are worthy there in verse 5. It says, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, and your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. It says his wonders are worthy, but again, in the text, the word is singular. It's your wonder. Let the heavens praise your wonder, O Lord, singular, that is referring to this promised blessing to Abraham flowing through David, issued from David, the promised king who would rule all of God's people, who would bring forth the promised servant of the Lord, who would unite all people under himself and rule over all the world. This wonder alone, God declares. Let the heavens praise your wonder, O Lord. And so the psalmist really is rightly praising God for his wisdom, his infinite wisdom, and the plan and the purposes he set forth not only in David's life, but in the promises before David, the promises he made to Abraham and before Abraham, the promise he made to Adam and to Eve for the blessing and the reversal of the enmity that exists between the enemy and the daughter and the sons of man. This is God's infinite wisdom. If his wisdom and his steadfast love and faithfulness has been established in the heaven before anything was created or made, then the wonder of God's covenant of redemption should lead us to praise and worship God. Let the heavens praise your wonder, O Lord. We learn not only are his wonders worthy, but his faithfulness is unmatched. There in verse 5b, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones must be praised in heaven. It is unmatched. There in verse 8, O Lord of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, 
This is the faithfulness of God over and over to generation to generation on display, working out through the promises that he has given to his people as seen in the promises and the purposes of David, his life and his servant, who is like this God who is faithful beyond measure. There is none who are more faithful. The most honest, decent person you know is a liar to God. Paul says, let God be true and all men alike. God is faithful, and His faithfulness is unmatched. There is none like this God whose faithfulness is as sure as the rising and the setting of the sun. His wonders are worthy. His faithfulness is unmatched. His power is great. Look in verse 7 and 8. We see that He has a might and a power beyond measure. You are a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around Him. O Lord of God, hosts of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord. He is a powerful God. In verse 9, notice, this God is sovereign. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who has power over creation except him who has created all creation? He is sovereign as a ruler, a king over all things. He has a great might and authority that he wields in his hands. Verse 10, you crushed Rahab. This is a term for Egypt, like a carcass, and you scattered the enemies with your mighty arm. He has rescued God's people in the Exodus from Egypt, and he has crushed them as they crossed over the Red Sea. He is mighty and powerful, not only to, to declare what the seas will do, but to defeat any enemy that comes against it. We see ultimately that he has the power to create and sustain creation. The heavens, verse 11, are yours, and the earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabar and Hermon, these are two mountains, a tall and a small mountain. They joyously praise your name. All of creation formed under power and the authority of God. He has authority and power. It is great. His wonders are worthy. His faithfulness is unmatched. His power is great. Fourth, his character, we learn, is perfect. Verses 13 and 14. You have a mighty arm, and strong is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you, as if it emanates from him, from him to us. His character is perfect. He is righteous and just. There is not an unjust or unrighteous deed, action, word, thought that God issues forth. All steadfast love and faithfulness emanates from God as he sits on the throne of justice and foundation of righteousness, which is its foundation. His people are blessed, verses 15 through 16. Who is like our God, whose people are blessed? Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your faith, and who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. Notice two things about his people. First, that they walk or live illuminated by God's love and by truth. This faithfulness and love set forth by God, demonstrated in his precious promises, fulfilled both to David and ultimately to all of us in Christ. We are to walk illuminated by God's love and truth. We walk in the light of his face, it says. This means that we take the truth of God as faithful, and we take the promises of God as demonstrating his love and kindness to us, and we live in that light. The darkness of our circumstances cannot dispel the light of God's love and truth 
displayed to us through the person and work of Jesus. But these people not only to walk illuminated by God's love and truth, but they are to rejoice, or it says exult in his name there in verse 16. Blessed are those who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. That is, we are to sing praises genuinely, joyfully, overwhelmed and overjoyed for the work that God has done for us. This is the mark of God's people. That we walk in the light of the face of God, illuminated by His love and truth, and we are rejoicing and joyful in the name of God. Again, this informs not only what we sing, but what we say, what we believe. It informs our actions and our decisions. So we learn that God alone is to be feared. And then what the psalmist does is he praises God by recounting the covenant that he made with David. We read about this covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 13 and onwards. But this is a good recap of this. Verses 17 to 37, we see four things about the promise that he made to David that his servant would be. First, applying to David, but soon we see must be applied to somebody else as David is long dead. His sons have all ran Israel into the ground. And so this promise, which now seems in the dirt, must be resurrected again if it is to be true. Four things about the precious promise that God made to, to, with the covenant to David. First, that this person, this promised king and ruler, would be anointed, verse 17. He speaks, of course, initially of David, but he speaks of his chosen servant. For you are the glory of their strength, his people. By your favor, our horn is exalted. That is the horn of salvation. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. He has been chosen or anointed. He continues. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one. That would be Samuel, to whom God had appointed and selected David. And he said, I granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. So David was chosen and was found by God, it says. Though Samuel was there and Samuel did the legwork, it was God who directed, it was God who anointed. And so in the same way, the psalmist says, this future Davidic ruler, if it's not David, must be one who would be God's anointed king, who would be the firstborn son of God, to whom he would be called father. This is the one the covenant points to. This is the promise God made to David. So David's ruler would be anointed. Secondly, that this ruler would be victorious. Verses 21 through 24, so that my hand will be established with him. My arm shall be shall strengthen and my enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him, strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted. This king would be victorious over all enemies. All of God's might and power, all of which was recounted in verses 5 through 16, all of that perfect, righteousness and justice and power and faithfulness of God that he has just recounted are now at work in and through his servant so that it would be, he would be victorious at the right hand of the Father. The enemy of God and his king, it says, would not prevail over him but would instead be crushed and struck down in verses 22 to 24. The wording is not the same as used in Genesis 3 where 
the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, but the language there does bring up this idea that the one who would come from David's line is the same who would come from Eve's, who would crush the head of the serpent and destroy God's enemies for good. Not only is this Davidic ruler anointed and to be victorious, but he is also, again, to be sovereign, just as God is sovereign. This ruler is to be sovereign. In verse 25, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, O God, the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is to be a sovereign ruler whose dominion does not have an end, who rules sovereignly over the earth, and all is put under subjection under his feet. The Davidic ruler is anointed, victorious, and sovereign. And lastly, verses 29 and 37 remind us that his kingdom is unending. It will be established forever. The seed, or the offspring of David here, there in verse 29 and 36, is said to rule in perfect righteousness and power over God's people forever. And it says here in verse 35 that God has sworn by his holiness that this would be so. What does it mean that God swears by his holiness? It means that God himself calls down a curse upon himself if his word were to ever fail. When he swears by his holiness, he is guaranteeing the outcome of this covenant, lest he himself be subject to the penalty thereof. What this means is, and what the psalmist understands, is that, this, that the covenant he made with David, and the one from which this Davidic ruler will come, is backed by the guarantee of God's character, which is loving and faithful. Always consistently loving and faithful. And so, thus ends the original psalm. The editor then picks up in verse 38. And the tone of the psalm has changed. What was once a high praise to the faithfulness and love of God now is lament. It seems to be a repudiation of God's love and faithfulness. Now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Is God's covenant rejected? Is his anointed one left in the dust? Rather than the Davidic king defeating his enemies, which was promised in verse 22 and 23, now the enemies are plundering the Davidic king, and he has become a reproach to his neighbors, there in verse 41. Rather than the Davidic king's hand being strengthened, verse 25, the right hand of his foes is being exalted, and they're glad over him, we read in verse 42. His sword loses its edge, it becomes blunted, and he has no victory over his enemies. He cannot stand in battle. It seems that God has yanked from God's people the promise he made to secure for them an everlasting kingdom. And thus arises several pressing questions, verses 46, 47, 48, and 49, a series of hard, pressing questions. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity have you created all the children of man? That's a question. Verse 48, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, here's the pointed question, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? These 
questions are not illegitimate. They're not unbelieving, antagonistic, accusatory questions. They are desperate pleas for the Lord, whom he has described as faithful and just and righteous and true and mighty to save. They are desperate pleas for the Lord to act according to his word and promises. Have you ever prayed a kind of prayer like this? Lord, why? When? How long? Is this what your plans were for me? Is this how things are supposed to go? Where is your steadfast love, O Lord? They're pleased for God to act according to his word, according to his promise, according to his character. This is who he is. This is what he said he would do. Why is this not panning out the way he has promised? These pressing questions drive the psalmist to a precious hope by first a petition and then a praise. Look in verse 50 and 52. First he prays, Remember, remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of many nations. He prays that God would remember him and would remember his word. As the psalmist remembers God's faithfulness, as he remembers his love and steadfast mercy, he calls upon God to remember him and ultimately to remember his covenant, that his word wouldn't go void, that it wouldn't be empty, that it wouldn't fail. It is a prayer for God to return to the work of building his kingdom and of restoring his people. It is to build... Recall earlier, verses 2 and 4, to build his kingdom once again according to his promise. That's the petition. But he doesn't end simply with the petition. He ends with a praise. Verse 52, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Here he says, even if David's kingdom has fallen and has not been established to last forever, as it seems to have been, the Lord is blessed forever. He is the true and righteous king. But he has promised, and because of who he is, he will deliver on that promise. If the petition is to be remembered and to remember his covenant, the praise is that God would be blessed. It is a doxology that honors and praises God for who he is. The psalmist, he doesn't end on a note of unbelief even if he's distraught and confused about what God might be up to in his situation. No, in his heart, he still believes that the Lord will and that the Lord must keep his covenant with David. I would be careful about calling God to account of the promises and the words. As we'll see, it's far too easy to misinterpret what God has promised to us. But in this case, it is clear that God's word is sure. And it was right for the psalmist to pray to God to remember his covenant. He believed the Lord will and must keep his covenant with David. So what do we learn from Psalm 89? How can we be encouraged in our own life today to believe the promises of God despite the darkness and the distressing situations we find ourselves in? Two exhortations. First, go back to the promise. Go back to the promise. When you find yourself in a situation in life or a season in life where it has taken a turn for the worse, God has been building your kingdom. He has been blessing you. Your children have been behaving. You got that raise at work. Your family hasn't been fighting. And everything's been really good and your grass is always full. 
And then everything turns. All of a sudden, there's a difficulty at work. All of a sudden, your children are not behaving. All of a sudden, a family member becomes ill. All of a sudden, tragedy strikes a nation. And all of a sudden, you're thrown into a deep depression, dejected and lonely. The plans you laid for yourself have not come out, and you thought that's what the Lord wanted. You prayed, and you thought he had confirmed that. You believed his word was leading you to believe this, and this is not the case you find yourself in. What do you do when you're struck in that kind of moment, and you're wondering, where is your steadfast love? Where is the word you promised and the fulfillment of your blessings and your promise to your people? You must go back to the promise. Psalm 89 is a sober reminder of the need to return again and again to the word of God in our times of distress. When your expectations do not match your reality, it is not the oracles of God that have failed, but your judgment of them. In this case, the psalmist's view of God's promises were much too nearsighted. He believed David would be the answer. He believed David's sons and his kingdom would be the answer. And when it was apparent that they were not, he was thrown into despair. He had hope, but hope was distant. And so he pleaded for God to act and change and build and restore. Friends, do you find yourself in a place where you are wondering if God's purposes will stand true? If his promises that you believe he made to you are true, you must go back to the promise. The psalmist reiterates the promise of God made to Abraham and to David. And he says, Lord, this is what you've promised. This is where we find the answer to all of life's questions. The seed of David and that of Abraham, it would not be like the sons who ruled after him. There's a distinction here made in the covenant between the offspring of the seed and the sons of the children. The sons... The children of David would go on to sin, but the seed of David would be the one who is sinless. The seed of David would not be like the sons who would rule after him. Their sins would bring God's judgment, but the promised offspring, the son, would have no such sin for which God would judge him. But instead, this king, who would be Jesus, God in the flesh, would take upon himself our judgment. The redemption that the psalmist seeks here, that God would come and redeem and restore it would not be fully delivered until Christ suffers God's wrath for our sins, that he would be risen by the power of God on the third day. That's when the promise, according to God's word in 2 Samuel 7, and what the psalmist here hopes in, that's when the promise of blessing and unending rule will become a reality in the life and ministry of Christ. The plan is to go back to the promise. If not now, when? And that's the key distinction. Is not an if God will fulfill his promises, but a when. When you find yourself in distress, go back to the promises of God. Reread them. Rework them. Understand that God, who is mighty, sovereign, loving, and faithful, has not abandoned his promises, but you have simply misjudged them. Know that God is faithful to his promises. The greatest demonstration of this is in his fulfillment of the promise he made to David in the person of Jesus. Jesus, we know, is the Davidic ruler promised. He is the one who sits on the throne, whose kingdom is established forever. He is the one who is perfect, rules in justice and righteousness. He is the one whose dominion has no ends. He is the one who has taken on the judgment of God's people so that we would be brought into the kingdom of God. This is the Davidic ruler 
who was promised to David, the psalmist seeks to see. Christ fulfills that promise. And so like the many promises of God he makes to us when we find ourselves in a distressing situation, questioning just like the psalmist here is, return to the promise. The second exhortation then, beyond this, not simply to go to the promise, but then to go to God. Return to the promise by returning to God. Why? Because the psalmist is clear that his promises are rooted in his character. We can trust the promise because we can trust God. He is a trustworthy God. His loving kindness and faithfulness is and stands forever. They're rooted in his character. The moment God's word fails is the moment he ceases to be God. His promises are rooted in his character, and therefore, friends, as you go to the promise, you find yourself at the feet of the cross. You find yourself to Jesus. He is the promised Davidic king, but not only this, the divine son of God. It was God himself who would come and take on the blows and the enmity that his enemy exalts over. He takes on the judgment and the condemnation that we deserve in order to establish a kingdom in which we participate and belong. In our distressful situations, in the turn of our circumstances, away from the blessings and into the curses, we must remember that it is not us who has been cursed, but Christ. And therefore, when we go back to the promise, we are following the truth of the promises back to the character of God himself and to Jesus, who stands as the assurance of that promise. And what is that assurance? It is his death, and his resurrection. Because he was risen from the dead, that promise is sealed. It is guaranteed. And we have the promise we cling to so dearly as the guide of our life. Friends, go to the promise and go to God. Like the psalmist in Psalm 89, as you recount God's words and promises to you and you ask the hard questions about what God may be up to, you must say with the psalmist, remember, O Lord, remember and remind me Blessed be the Lord forever and ever. This is the theme of the song we sing. This is the cry and the songs of our heart, that God is faithful. And so we say with verse 1, that we will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. And with our mouth we will make known His faithfulness to generation and generation. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for, God, your love, which is steadfast, and your faithfulness, which is established and unending. Lord, forgive us of our unbelief, of our ingratitude, of the anxiety that we see in our lives when our world takes a turn in a direction we had not planned or looks like your purposes and promises for us are going unfulfilled. God, give us patience and give us perspective to see that the promises that are rooted in your character will never fail. And that though we may need to reinterpret and re-understand their true meaning, that it is not your word which fails, but it is our own hearts which constantly fail. And so we pray with the psalmists, Lord, that you would act, that you would come, that you would restore, but ultimately, Lord, that you, in your faithfulness to your promises, would give us a praise and a song to sing that our lives would be lived in light of your face and that we rejoice and exult in your name.
because of who you are, loving and faithful forever. We give thanks to you for Jesus, who is the demonstration of your faithfulness and your love. We give thanks to you for securing our salvation through his death and for raising him again from the dead, which is the guarantee that his work and his death, his sacrifice was acceptable and we may receive pardon for sin and his righteousness, not for our work or our credit or merit, but because of your love and mercy and faithfulness. For this we praise, in Jesus' name, amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Sure.